Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckocrats? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Well, we had a couple hours there where there was a little bit of relief. We we di- I don't think that we were expecting to be relieved entirely because uh, he's still alive. But uh, but I do think that there was at least a little relief. I don't know what we would have felt like, and I'm obviously speaking to uh, to us, not to them. If uh, you're one of them, just bear with me or move on, move on through. Just passing by, you are. Take a look and then keep moving. But uh, but I don't know what I, I heading into this show that I have on Saturday night here in New York at the Beacon. I was really kind of nervous because I thought, well, if we if we, if the house doesn't flip, everybody's going to be kind of paralyzed and hopeless more so than than every other day during this administration. Thank you. Thank you for for voting, for getting out there, for doing that. And uh, and it was relieving. When I woke up yesterday morning, I was relieved. And about five hours later, uh, Sessions is fired. And then there goes that relief. This president is such a fucking fuck. I'm sorry. Is that I could have come up with something more clever, but I did not do it in that moment. What I'm saying was we had that moment where we all felt good. I'm not saying we felt great, but we felt a little bit of relief, a little portal of hope opened up. And it's still open, but they, but then Sessions quits or is pushed out or is fired. So you get this arc. You're Wednesday morning. You're like, oh, yeah, well, that f- thank God that hell. Fuck. Fuck. Now we're back in it. Game on. So I don't mean to sound chipper, but I'm not going to fucking, I'm, I'm not going down into the trenches of, my, of self. I'm not going to do it. We knew this was coming. This is what's happening. This is the fight. We got to keep fighting. So that's that. This is just what it is. It's America's turn for authoritarianism. We can push back because our system is not completely crumbled. Anyways, all right, enough of that. Congratulations. Thank you for voting. Got a lovely email here uh, from Amber, somebody. Discomfort over regret, subject line. Look, 
I am the person who needs deadlines. So, of course, I didn't vote ahead and I moved. So there's the inconvenience of the provisional ballot. And I have a nagging feeling my vote is lost in a sea of red in my state. And, yeah, I had small kids to get to school and woke up today with a head cold. And I worked 12 hours on my feet and drove for two hours. But I fucking voted. I couldn't have your voice in my head for the next couple of years. I've listened to episodes 900 through 980 of WTF in the last month, and you've been pleading with us to rock the vote almost every episode. Just wanted to say you made a difference today. I made it to the polls 10 minutes before they closed. I chose temporary discomfort over regret. I won't forget the lesson. Thank you for everything you do. Amber. Then she sent another email because obviously she was thinking about it. Correction, episodes 900 through 965. For those of you who were paying attention, she did not listen to 900 through 980. It was 900 through 965. Thank God we got that corrected. Do you know what I mean? Sessions was fired, but you know, it's Amber. We're all relieved that you cleared that up with the second email. Good for you for voting. Good for everybody for voting. Feels good, doesn't it? It's not even that hard, is it? You do it by mail. You can even take some time and do your research and not be stuck there going like, oh, fuck, what is, what, what, yes or no, what is this? No, I got to read it. Yeah, you can take the time, parse it out, think about it, ask questions of people that know what they're talking about, have it explained to you. However you do it, it's nice to, to know what you're voting for. And I wasn't always that guy. I was, I was just a guy who was like, go vote for what you feel is good. But that goes, you know, that, that's what happens on both sides. And uh, we're both guilty of that sometimes. But God damn it, we made a difference the other day. But the fight between the House and Donald Trump for the next two years is going to be a doozy. But that aside, did I even mention who's on the show today? Maybe I should do that. Sandy Hackett is on the show today. Who is Sandy Hackett, you ask? Sandy Hackett is a comedian and entertainer. He's Buddy Hackett's son. I'll explain what compelled me. But he's an entertainer. He's got a Rat Pack show. He's a Vegas guy. But he's Buddy Hackett, so Buddy Hackett is very important to me. But I didn't tell you about this, really. I don't think I told you about it at all. But I went up to Boston for two days because I got a little part in a movie called Wonderland, which is a Mark Wahlberg movie uh, directed by Pete Berg. For those of you who don't know, maybe I've mentioned it before, many years ago when I was living in L.A. back in the late 80s, for about a month or so, I lived with Pete Berg and Steve Brill because I was living with Steve Brill, my friend from college, and we were writing together. And then his buddy, Pete Berg, wanted to move in. So they moved me to the couch and then made me very uncomfortable for a couple months until I moved down the hall. And then that got awkward. Long story. Alcohol. You know, a little inappropriate. And then I moved to uh, the comedy store. So I got cast in this legit. And uh, I went up to Boston it was me and Mark Wahlberg. I did not I did not call him Marky Mark, did I? That was my biggest fear, to be honest with you. I mean, for some reason that just doesn't go away. That sticks, that's like a fucking brainworm. That just lodges in there, Marky Mark. And I was when I was talking about doing the movie, I was saying to people, like, I'm doing this movie with Marky Mark, and they were like, Don't call him that. And I'm like, Is that not that's not good? You can't do that. <laughs> but I, I mean I didn't want to, obviously, but it sort of stuck in my head. So it was me. Wahlberg and uh, Winston Duke, the dude who lived in the mountain in uh, Black Panther, had a scene together. It went well. It's a it's a cop movie. It's a Boston movie. I play a sort of aggravated, uh, uh, neur- neurotic, angry uh, crime reporter. 
Yeah, another stretch for me. Another difficult role. So anyway, it went well. And uh, I'll tell you more about it later. I'll let you know when it comes out. I believe it's a Netflix movie. But it was fun, though, because Steve Brill actually flew out. Steve Brill, who uh, just directed Adam Sandler's latest comedy special, which is very touching. And he's an old friend of mine, an old friend of Pete's. We thought it'd be a nice, fun reunion. So Steve flew out, and we all had dinner together. And the two of them put on jumpsuits and were pretending to work on the boat across from the boat that I live on. That's all I can tell you, I think, legally. And uh, we had a little scene. So there's a little reunion that only means something to us three, if it even makes the film. But that's why Steve wanted to fly out. And Pete was like, this is going to be hilarious. So uh, I did a scene with the two guys who used to uh, make me very uncomfortable and comedically, in a good-natured way, terrorized me back in the late 80s on a couch when I was trying to sleep. We're doing it again in a film. Man, I hope I didn't give away the whole movie. That's not the whole movie. Did I mention that the work has to continue? Okay, you know, the, the one thing that this administration has done, it seems to have mobilized people who were not necessarily apathetic, but uh, disengaged. It seems like by, just by looking at them numbers, a lot of people are engaged. We've got to stay engaged. So Sandy Hackett, I believe, emailed me. And uh, he's an entertainer, but but I didn't know him. I don't. It turns out he he ran a comedy club. He used to do a singing act. He used to do a comedy act. He used to open for his father. He was the head of uh, the entertainment. You'll hear when I talk to him. But his father, Buddy Hackett, was very important to me. I loved Buddy Hackett. When I was a young, young kid, he was one of the first guys. I used to see him in the Love Bug movies. You'd see him on TV. But I just, I loved him. I, I thought he was one of the funniest people alive. And he certainly was one of the funniest people that ever lived. And I remember when I was young, I, I sent away for an autographed picture. And he sent me one. I don't know if he autographed it, but I had an autographed picture of Buddy Hackett. I just thought he was hilarious. My grandmother loved him. I remember when I was very young, my grandmother and grandfather, Goldie and uh, Jack, used to go to Vegas back in the day and she said she would see buddy hackett and i just remember like oh my god you saw buddy hackett she goes see shecky green buddy hackett don rickles and she'd see all these people that i love because i loved stand up way back i remember reading the last page of parade magazine uh, my favorite jokes i just love looking at those guys i love reading those jokes but i remember when i talked to her about buddy hackett and telling her how much i liked him she goes he's very funny but he's filthy he's very filthy and she said about don rickles you know he's he's he insults everybody, but he apologizes very nicely after the show is over. But my grandparents, you know, who, who went to Vegas, not quite since the beginning of Vegas, but certainly early on, I just remember being with them. We used to meet them, me and my family, my mother, my father, my brother would meet them when we lived in New Mexico, go meet the, uh, Jack and Goldie out at the MGM Grand once a year, spend a few days in Vegas. I remember my dad let me try to gamble. He bought me a fake mustache. I was like 15 and I had tinted sunglasses and we pasted a fake mustache on me and I gambled. I wandered around the casino with a fake mustache and my little tinted sunglasses. They must, I must have got away with it. They would have stopped me, right? But anyways, point being, I remember one night I was sitting at the MGM Grand with my grandparents and my parents and my brother eating dinner, talking about Vegas. So my fascination with Sandy has to do with his father has to do with, you know, being the, the child of a entertainer growing up with an entertainer, but also about Vegas, because I've done a couple interviews with, you know, I talked to Rita Rudner. There's some connective tissue here in the sense that Vegas 
has always been a place that was a, you know, a goal for some entertainers that doing a residency in Vegas was a big deal if you were that kind of performer. To me, it sounds like hell. Like the idea of like, hey, I'm going to do 20 weeks in Vegas sounds like what did I do wrong? Why am I being punished like this? How can I possibly do that? I couldn't imagine a worse thing. But some people love it. I recently talked to Brad Garrett, and I haven't posted that yet, but he's another guy. They're, they're, it's a hell of a way to make a living, a good way to make a living for some people who enjoy that. Slayton had one there, a residency. George Wallace has had one forever. Carrot Top has one. Brad Garrett has a club there. So it, it's, it's sort of an interesting conversation to me because my whatever brief love affair I had with Vegas, I was, it was when I was very young. So this is me talking to Sandy Hackett about his father, about Vegas, about the journey of somebody who, you know, grew up in the business with one of the funniest guys alive. It's a little sweet, a little bittersweet, but also a a nice story. Uh, Sandy is currently touring with his show, Sandy Hackett's Rat Pack. Go to sandyhackett.com for tour dates and info. He's currently working on a book called My Buddy, an anthology of stories about his father. It comes out early next year. This is me and Sandy Hackett back in the garage. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox page is for you get it now wherever you get your podcasts by the way you're a little smaller on radio than i thought you'd be i and and you are a little taller i was surprised (laughs) to be honest with you i i you know and you said nice things coming in here i'm glad that the show has uh, helped you out in your exercise routine and how are you feeling I feel pretty pretty good for uh, they, they call it a cardiac incident. Yeah, what, did, what the hell does that mean? Have I had one? I, I don't know. Only you would, would I, know. Would I know? Yeah, I mean, did you? I mean, do you, like? Well, it, I got lucky in that I didn't actually have a heart attack or right. a anything like that. Yeah, uh, I was going to was hit, hitting the road. I go to LAX. I park in the Southwest line, yeah. and I'm walking my carry bag, right. which I've done a thousand times yeah. into the terminal. Right. You know, what is that, 500 yards, that walk? Yeah, and, no, no, I mean, it's, yeah, and, right, okay. And I, I can't get 50 steps without going, <gasps> oh, really? And I'm flop sweating, and I'm going, oh, my goodness. What Holy is, shit. This is not what I expect. I yeah, don't <laughs> right, yeah. And what happened? You don't know, because at this age, you start to read about things. How old are you? I'm 54. I'm, I'm 62. Really? Yeah. Okay. You think I would lie? No, but I, I, I have a bad habit of saying really after you know, like questions really? that are... Yeah. <laughs> Why did I didn't... <laughs> yeah. I believe you. Uh, Why would you choose that number if you were lying? You know, that's that's the other part of the dumb really. 
but you're all right. No heart attack, and you don't. And it's just an event, and he didn't tell you what it was. It no, was no, just, they, they that started. Then I got, took a I got on a flight yeah. and went to uh, stopped in Las Vegas, and they said, "Oh, we've changed your gate." So I, if you know the Las Vegas airport, normally it's. Right, you're in the same, but I went from C to A. So you got to run. I got to run. Yeah. And when I get there, I feel like uh, my chest is going to cave in. I'm sweating profusely. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to die. And I, I said to Lee, "Where's oh the plane?" She says, "Oh, we moved it back to the other gate." <laughs> oh my god! And I go, "Can you call someone? I I need uh, a ride." Yeah. And they don't come, and I'm going to miss my flight. So I go. I meet the rest of uh, the cast that I'm- For the Rat Pack? For the Rat Pack, and uh, get on the plane and go, you look terrible. I said, thank you very much. So we did the shows in uh, Wichita, Kansas, I believe. Yeah. And then uh, I get on the plane coming home. It stops in Las Vegas, and on the plane is a friend of mine coming up the aisle. Yeah. And he sits next to me, didn't know he was going to be on there. Yeah. And I start telling him what happened. He said, oh, he promised me you're going to go see the doctor. Promise me you're going to go, okay, right, I'll right. go see the doctor. So yeah. I go see the doctor, and the doctor says, we do this test. Okay, it looks like we need to do another test we put you on the stress test and he says it looks like something's uh, we should do a uh, angiogram right sure and if you go for the angiogram they prep you for what if we are going to do something you know they shoot the the die yeah and they go through the wrist now uh-huh as opposed to where uh the they, leg? Used, they used to go through the leg yeah they used to go through the shoulder with or the camera the you mean yeah uh-huh well, they, right, the camera and the yeah, die, yeah. and they send it through, and they see where it's blocked. So yeah. uh, you're laying there, and I, you're conscious, but you're not. I took a Valium or something that they give you, so you're a little, and I never did drugs, so yeah, one yeah. Valium to me is you yeah. know, like a heroin overdose. It's nice. Uh, my wife it's said I was never funnier. Yeah. <laughs> see? See what, you, see what you should have done if you redid it? <laughs> And uh, he's while I'm on the table, he says we've got a 98 percent no, we've got a 99 percent blockage. No, that just went to 100 percent. Okay, we're going to fix this right now. Oh, so you have full blockage in one of the things. Full blockage in the left. Uh, Not the big one. The, the one next to it, which is you know the one they call one the widowmaker, and this and, one and the other one doesn't have a name yeah. yet because it wasn't big enough. But the widow, the widowmaker, and the just fucking kills you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and he said, you know, had we not caught this right now, you would have been had a massive heart attack. And depending on how far you were away from uh, medical attention, you know, it would have oh my god hurt you or killed you. And so uh, end up with a double stent. He said, I've never done this before. I had to take two stents. You had such a big block. Oh, good. So you gave him an opportunity to try something new. Yes. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Basically, they put a garden hose in my chest. (laughs) Yeah. It's terrifying. Did you have high cholesterol? Yes, but not... Well, apparently I had very high cholesterol. I mean, mean, my dad had heart disease. He died from coronary artery disease. But he lived a long time. 78. I guess that's pretty good. In today's world, that's pretty good, but I was with him when he went to the doctor who told him he had a blockage. And in those days, uh, you're going back, he's gone 15 years now. He was, it was 10 years before that. So 25 years ago, they weren't doing these stents like this. And they wanted to, they open up the leg, they take out a vein, they do open up your your chest cavity, they do the bypass surgery. Right. And he said, I don't want that. And the doctor was from uh, Cedar Sinai, and I, I remember his name, P.K. Shot. Oh, Mr. Hackett, you have yeah. a uh, occlusion, and this is very serious, and we must to take care of this right away. Yeah. 
What What do you mean? Well, we, we open you up. Op- no, you're not going to open me up. Oh, no, that's what we do. We open you up, and then we take the vein from the leg. Oh, no, shit, you're not doing that. <laughs> he says, how long do I have? And, he, oh, I don't know, maybe two days, two weeks, two months. And my father said, what's the longest I could go? <laughs> he, well, maybe, maybe you could go 10 years. Maybe. I don't know. And, he, and my dad said, okay, I'll take the 10 years. <laughs> And he, it was almost like 10 years to the day. No shit. That, you know, that, yeah, that he yeah. went. He did not want to get opened up. And I had a friend in Las Vegas, which is where I used to live, who was the chief of surgery. He was uh-huh. a heart surgeon. And he'd come from New York. He was living out in Las Vegas. He was an incredible heart surgeon. Yeah. And uh, he would tell my dad all the time, I'll, I'll be, let me oh, operate yeah. on you. I'll save you. Yeah. No, not going to open me up. I don't want to be open. He says, why not? He says, what if you kill me? Yeah. He said, I wouldn't kill you. This is what I do for a living. And he goes, yeah, but you know, that would really fuck up your reputation if you kill Buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so he's just, he was afraid of that, the surgery of the heart. He never had, yes, yeah, so other surgeries probably. Um, he was on a golf course one time with a guy who was, and I don't know what kind of surgeon this guy was, yeah. but he said, I got this little thing in my chest. And he says, oh, well, we'll go back to the office after golf and I'll take a look. And he looked at it and he goes, eh, I'm not sure, but we're, we're going to cut it out. And he gave him a local and cut it out. And they took out a mass about the size of this, which is always good to show people sure. stuff on radio. So about golf ball. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, a little really? bigger, maybe a little bigger was than it, that. Was uh, it benign or? Yeah, it was benign. Well, now see, like you know, when you when you showed up for some reason, you know, you you know, we, I you gave you a hug and you thanked me for the show because it helped get you through this thing. But I got a little emotional because you, you know, I I I I knew of you and I you know and I know you know what you've done. But I fucking loved your father, and I, have, I imagine you hear that a lot. I hear it a lot, and I heard you talk about I forgot who you were talking to, yeah. but you were from uh, down the road in New Jersey, where I was from. Uh, I, my grandmother lived in Pompton Lakes. I think you were in Fort Lee, right? Fort Lee, right. Well, my aunt was in the Horizon Houses. You know? <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, so like, but the original ones, yeah, or the, the original ones they put no, on not where the Palisades Park was. No, the original ones, and then they added those two, the the uh, the new ones, right? Yeah. No, they were. She was in the original ones, like Horizon House. You know, one, I can't remember one or two. You know, right when you pull in, it was it was uh, the old ones. No, I remember. I went to school with kids that uh, were right, right across from Hiram's. Right. Yeah. So the hot dog place, the the, the diner. Yeah, <laughs> they had the hot dogs, the big hot dogs. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, so I, w- I spent a lot of time in her house. My, it was my father's aunt, my, my, my father's aunt, Evie, who lived there. But I'd spend weeks, we, when we moved away when I was a kid, if I'd go back to uh, the East Coast, I'd stay with my grandma Goldie in Pompton Lakes, but I always stay like at least a week or two with Evie at the Horizons house because right by New York and they were very uh, kind of highbrow commie uh, you know old school commie Jews and <laughs> commie? You know, yeah well no you know like uh, they were involved with uh, you know the in, in the 60s with Angela Davis and stuff he was a, a blood doctor she was an artist so it was very kind of like lefty intellectual uh, household and you know Fort Lee is where the movie industry started no, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's where the uh, Thomas the, Edison was down the road. Oh, right. And uh, there's a museum there, almost right in the footprint of the bridge. Yeah, uh, that takes you back to oh, uh, really? what it was. And eventually, they couldn't film there twenty, uh, you know, year round. There was too, it was winter and it would yeah. get cold, and they couldn't film, so they moved it out to California. But it started in Fort Lee. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So where'd you guys live? Well, this is amazing. You were born in Fort Lee? Uh, born in New York, Mount Sinai Hospital. My right. dad had a house when I was born in Leonia on the 
golf course in the Englewood Golf Course. Where's that? In uh, Jersey? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. was a few miles away. Right. Eventually got redeveloped and became housing and stuff like right, that. It, right, It didn't support itself. But if you remember the movie Godfather, yeah. when they go out and they wipe out everybody, there's a scene in a barber's chair where they yeah. kill a guy in a barber's chair. Well, yeah. That was based on a guy named Albert Anastasia. Anastasia, yeah. And that was the house I grew up in, in Fort Lee. My dad bought it. <laughs> Anastasia was killed in 1956, the year I was born. The uh-huh. house sat empty for many years. It sat up on the Palisades, like the Horizon uh, Apartments, overlooking New York. Right. And my dad bought that. It was huge. It was three stories. And my dad bought it out of uh, bankruptcy or whatever, foreclosure. Foreclosure, right. And we lived there. And it was, uh, it, it was the downstairs basement had 10 rooms. And there was one room that supposedly was like for if you, if you killed a deer, you take it and drain the deer. But yeah. I'm, I'm thinking there were- Oh, really? It, when you were a kid, oh, like, yeah. that room was just weird. And everybody knew about Albert Anastasia then. Murder, Inc., right? Murder, Inc. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was a grisly, uh, he was shot up in the in the barbershop. So your dad, did he did he, did he make jokes about that? Did he like, did he- <laughs> He must have known, uh, obviously, that it was his house. <laughs> he was living. Well, he knew it was his house. Yeah. I don't know that he made jokes about. It. I was probably too young to uh, understand. When did you leave there? Uh, we moved out here when I uh, sixth grade, so I was uh, twelve. Oh, so you so you there a long time? You know, I mean, you were there. You, you have memories of it. Well, we grew up in in uh, from Leonia. He moved into that house in 1960. But yeah. then he made Mad 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 World and was out. We were out here for a year. Yeah. While he made that and then went back. And then I was a scrawny little kid and I kept going, I won't go to California. I'm, I'm cold. You are. <laughs> I mean, really, I was cold. And, and my parents looked at me one day and said, you know, he's right. It's cold. Let's get out of here. <laughs> so you're the only kid? No, I have two sisters. Oh, yeah? How are they doing? I, I don't know. We don't talk. Is that true? Yeah. Huh. Why is that? Uh, it doesn't matter. It's <laughs> well. I mean, I, it, I, my dad died, and I swear the family went a wall. Oh, they went crazy. Everybody went their own direction. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, it just. Did they talk to each other? I don't know. Oh wow. They, well, no, I mean, why does it matter? I don't know. It always bothers me when that happens. It bothers me too. I wish it didn't happen, but it it has, and I have no control over it. Sure, uh, but like, okay, so you're living in Jersey. It's it's interesting. He's in Albert Anastasia's house. And at that time, like, you know, I, I, I'm not talking about your father, but in general, you know, the nightclub business, you know, he dealt with mobsters, obviously, at some point. You know, they all did. Oh, my God, did he deal with mobsters. Yeah. He got a call to do a show one day, and he said, I'm not available. And they said, make yourself available. And so uh, someone kept calling. I don't remember the details of this <laughs> particular he story. He told you about it? Yeah. Well, uh, so he ended up doing the show, and then one day a truck pulls up to the house. Yeah. And there's a jukebox. Uh-huh. And they said, what's that? Oh, that's from whoever it was that <laughs> right. asked you to do this show. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, what am I going to do about the records? Oh, we, we, you're on the route now. They'll come every month and change out the records. <laughs> and that record, that still sits in my mother's house. And I mean, eventually they quit changing the records. But <laughs> <laughs> Your mom's still around? Yeah. Oh, that's great. And she's out here? It was her birthday yesterday. Oh, how old? Uh, uh, 83. But we also don't talk. Oh, come on. It's terrible. So you're the one who's not talking to anybody? No, she she quit talking to me. Will she talk to your sisters? I don't know. <laughs> I don't talk to her, so I don't know who she's talking to. But this is your mother, but when your father died, he wasn't with her, right? He was. He They stayed together the whole time? Uh, they were separated for a short time, and... Uh, 
I don't know if it was a short time or uh, right. several years, but uh, eventually they got back together. But right. So let's go. Let's go back. So you growing up on these, you know, you going. When was the first time you remember? Because you're a comic and you're an entertainer, and you know you've built this. You're very uh, kind. Thank you. <laughs> you built this show, the the uh, Sandy Hackett's Rat Pack show. Yes. That's tours still. Yes. For like what a decade or two now. Uh, n- not two. Yeah, just about a decade. You know, and then you you did the the new show, uh, my buddy, about your father, about your relationship with your father yes i still tour that you do yeah so in in your early life you know to to decide to be a stand-up when your father's buddy hackett like and i've talked to you know the sons of uh david bowie of uh of uh you know bob dylan david bowie's son wanted to be a comedian no he didn't actually go into music (laughs) he's a filmmaker duncan jones Uh uh-huh and uh, but you know obviously jacob dylan went into music and i you know i always wonder you know and there's been other people like uh you don't have to tell me why you made the decision to do that, but when you were younger, was it? When did you first start experiencing? Uh, you, I can't like who was hanging around the house. When did you go to a nightclub for the first time? I, I didn't. I never consciously made the decision. I just was immersed in it. Yeah, and liked your it. whole life. Yeah, you know. Um, I think you'll find this interesting. Years ago, I was sitting at my mom's house, and yeah. there was a cabinet, and I'm looking through some videotapes, and I see Patrice Munsell. Yeah. Do you know who that is? I don't. So, uh, if you watch the original Ocean's Eleven, yeah. going down, there's a shot where they're going down the, the strip, and at the Riviera Hotel, it says Patrice Munsell and Buddy Hackett. Uh-huh. So, this is early 1960s. So he opened for him. He, he was opening for Patrice right. Munsell. So I see this videotape, a VHS, Patrice yeah. Munsell, and I go, I wonder what this is. I put it in, and it's the Patrice Munsell hour on, I believe, CBS television. Right. She had her own show. She was a a, uh, a star. Cabaret type? Uh, yes. Entertainer? Yeah. So on the show, it says the Patrice Munsell show with our special guest, da, 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 and the not ready for prime time players. And who do you think the not ready for primetime players are? Was it the SNL guys? My dad and Lenny Bruce. Oh, really? Two people. Yeah. That's it. They're, they're the not ready for primetime players on CBS in 1950-something. Wow. So that's what they, 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 they that was a used name before SNL. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Buddy Hack and Lenny Bruce. Yeah. So and they were friends, and right. they actually had an apartment together in New York. And my dad said we didn't have any furniture, so we just put sand on the floor. We had a couple of beach chairs. We put a a light up in the ceiling on the corner, uh, hanging on the door, one of those clamp lights. Yeah, you know. And then we'd invite girls over to come lay out at the beach with us. <laughs> <laughs> I remember him. He was friends with uh, with Lenny Bruce. I remember knowing that. And uh, and but at that time was it before Lenny Bruce you know kind of bust open? Long before he busted yeah, open. like he was just sort of a mimic and a you know a shtick guy. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of guys that have big props for Lenny. Think he was the guy who started a lot of thing. I, I'm I'm not a I'm not that fan. I, I I when I look at Lenny Bruce, I see an earlier version. Uh, or I, I see where my like he and my dad were friends, but my dad started working dirty, but yeah. he found a way to do it and not offend you. But there are guys 
you know, they had a problem with Lenny Bruce when he became the national phenomenon. And I agree with them. I, I, I never found him th- that overtly funny. I, I, I found him, you know, and then eventually he got really into the drugs. And yeah. I don't know. I didn't even know if he knew what he was talking about. But my dad would take, say something like ass and then tell you ass is not a dirty word. Yeah. Ass is not a dirty word. It's yeah. an abbreviation. A period, S period, S period. Anterior, superior, spine. <laughs> yeah. And he would make it medicinal, which is full of shit because it doesn't stand for that at all, but right. you believed it. But he was always so fucking funny. You know, like, just his delivery. He had the greatest delivery, the greatest, like, the, the way he talked and everything. You do a good impression. We should. What was <laughs> that? Why did his mouth do that? Uh, Bell's palsy when he was a kid. Is that what it was? Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Did you ever have it? No. Oh, not yet. Oh. <laughs> for another because that goes away. Incidents. I thought that did, it never, it never popped. It never. I, it usually clears up. I, I think it. It well. Don't forget, you're going back to when he was a kid. Yeah, you're in the 40s. Yeah. you know, in the 30s. Right. So, it, you, what does medicine do? I think it heals. He could speak perfectly clear if he absolutely had to, right, or not do that. But right. He knew that that worked for him, and he he never tried to make it go away completely. The point you're making about you know ass and stuff was at that juncture where they were starting to sort of break it open a little bit and and use the the the, the dirtier words and do it and and there was the mainstreaming of it but then there was the fight of it uh, where you know Lenny Bruce was pushing the First Amendment rights of you know to really go you know push the envelope of it but there were guys who were doing mainstream comedy that were also starting to integrate you know some of this stuff into their mainstream work. To me. Uh, uh, Look, I'm I'm prejudiced. It's my father. Yeah. I think he was the first to not only mainstream it but find a way to make it acceptable where the police didn't come after him. So so you're growing up in this business, but what do you remember, you know, like your earliest memories of like who was he hanging out with? When you're young, you don't know that your dad is your dad. You know yeah. he's your dad, but you don't know he's Buddy Hackett. Right. You don't know how big a star he is, but right. you start to realize those things as you start to get introduced to the things he was doing. We'd moved to California for yeah. him to do Mad World. Right. I don't really remember going to the set. I might have. Right. But right. at that sure, age, I don't sure. remember. Yeah. But when we back went back east, he did a show on Broadway called uh, "I Had a Ball." Yeah, where he was uh, had top building it was Buddy Hackett in I Had a Ball and the show got eh, men's and men's reviews yeah. but he stayed after the show he'd come out afterwards and do his nightclub act so people would buy a ticket to the show and that kept the show open for almost a year oh so he would uh, so he would just uh, they, they'd he'd come finish, out and do another 30-40 minutes finish the review and he'd come out and do stand up right and uh, Richard Pryor came to see him, mm-hmm. and Richard Pryor started talking to him, and then Richard Pryor came and stayed at our house when I was a kid, and my dad used to say, and I opened up his head and gave him a lot of good ideas for comedy. <laughs> but Richie was f- funny. And that was like before he broke out open, too. That was before he broke, and eventually we moved to California, and I was 15. Yeah. And I rode my bike from where we lived to, Richard Pryor was appearing at Century, uh, city and they had a theater there in those big ABC towers uh-huh. and I snuck in and after the show I got backstage and I'm trying to get to go see Richard Pryor and there's nothing but people but there's a long hallway and Richard's sitting at the very end of yeah. the hallway in his chair and they're going you can't come in here kid he said who's that and yeah. I said it's Sandy ha- you you better boy yeah. I said yeah let him in here and I sat there with him and he said your daddy was very good to me and yeah. I got to sit with him I, I, I never saw him again uh, live was that, what year was that was it I was 15 so uh, 71 oh okay so so he's getting big yeah oh right. you know he was he, the place was filled whatever yeah. it was yeah right right yeah 
Well, that's a, and, and he was a nice guy to you. Certainly was nice to me. Yeah. So as you're doing, who like who were some of the people that your dad, like the comics that would hang out regularly? Did he have a card game? Did he have any of that stuff? Never, uh, he, he wasn't into cards. He'd play solitaire by himself. But yeah. over the house, everybody came over to visit. Uh-huh. Where was this, in Beverly Hills? In Beverly Hills. And later in life, I was in my 20s and 30s, my mother went to Montmaison Cooking School. Uh-huh. And she said, why don't you have all your friends, comic friends, come over and I'll cook for everybody and you could sit around and tell stories. Yeah. And I almost brought you the, the picture, but I have it on my website. Yeah. Uh, and every six, eight months we'd have, uh, it was amazing. Yeah. would sit there. And I'm a young comedian. I don't think I spoke for the first three years. Yeah. And right. I had nothing to say. I right. just listened. Uh, my dad, George Burns. Burns, Red Buttons, uh, Shecky Green, uh, Dom DeLuise, uh, Jan Murray, Jerry Vale, just on a Tom Poston. Uh, They'd all just hang out at the pool? No, no. They sat around the, the dining room table yeah. and told stories, and you would just you laugh till you hurt. Yeah, yeah. And you were how old? It started in my late 20s, maybe. Oh, yeah. And I know that Jeff Ross became your dad's friend yes. later in life, right? Yes. Uh-huh. You and Jeff friends? I, I know Jeff. We uh, we don't hang out or anything, but whenever I see him, it's always friendly. Yeah, because like, he seemed to... Uh, like you know, he he bec- he's like the 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 legacy of of your dad's generation in a way. Uh, absolutely, and now he's become the roastmaster general. Right. And right, you know, my dad was always the guy that closed because no one wanted to follow him. Where at the roasts? Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when do you start to decide? Like, uh, like, do you live a normal life? You know, in terms of like uh, what you, what you wanted to be a comic, but you didn't do that till later. Where'd you end up going to college and stuff? Uh, UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. You just went, but you you didn't live there. I mean, I did. but I mean, like your family was here. He never lived in Vegas. Your father. Well, he didn't live in Las Vegas, but in those days, he was working twenty, thirty weeks a year at the Sahara Hotel, and I forgot what year it was, but he had wanted to. He didn't want to stay in the hotel anymore, uh-huh. and he said to the hotel, can you get me a house to live in or rent me a house? So yeah. they bought a house on the Sahara Country Club on the 7th Green. Yeah. And my mom, who was interior designer, redecorated it. They expanded it and added to it, and then he had, him, he had them build him a closet that he could lock that nobody could get into, so yeah. he could just leave his stuff because he worked so many weeks a year. Right. And then he didn't have to pack. And of all the things, when I hear people talk about their idiosyncrasies, and I, I couldn't perform, and I couldn't talk, and I got this, my dad hated to pack. Yeah. Couldn't stand it. Yeah. Him, for him packing, go into the closet, grab a handful of whatever, put it in, and go, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> and like, was he, like as a, as a dad, was he attentive and supportive? Unbelievable and, father. Strict disciplinarian. Really? But great dad. Uh-huh. Man, as I got older, once I got to where I wasn't afraid to death of him, because he had a temper. He did? He didn't exercise it on me, but I, I saw his temper, but he was best friend. And yeah, at but the end did. of his life, I talked to him every day, two or three times a day, and he yeah. wouldn't. He wouldn't just call. You just the phone rings. I go, hello. A guy goes into a sh- shopping market. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you just start right in. Start right in with it. <laughs> but he did have a bit of a temper, huh? If you invoked it, yeah. He went to a party one time, and some guy came up to him and stuck his finger in his drink, just as a joke. My dad said, why would you do that? I wanted to see your reaction. I'm a psychiatrist. I wanted to see your reaction. My dad said, well, don't do it again or you'll see it. And he took his drink. He put it down. He got a fresh one. Yeah. And the guy came over and did it again. And my dad hit him a shot and it was on the ground floor like you have here in the studio. And he knocked him out the window. He knocked him. (laughs) 
and he ended up having to settle the lawsuit for you know whatever fifteen twenty thousand dollars. But no that, that's what he did. But the guy yeah. provoked him. Provoked him. So he's kind of a scrapper. He's a tough guy. Oh, when he was a kid, yeah. Why? Well, where did he grow up? Brooklyn. Oh, uh, so yeah, Brooklyn. Like, uh, were the parents from the the old country? Uh, I don't actually. My, I remember him saying, I don't know if it was his father or his grandfather was from Poland. Yeah, right. Galicia. Uh huh. And uh, uh, so and my you, father's father was an upholsterer. Yeah. Did you know him? Uh, when I was little, I don't remember him at all. Yeah. So he grew up in Brooklyn, working class, Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so because yeah, I mean, I, I watched a. Uh, a segment of him on Carson talking about his real, you know, the real name, the you know, the hacker. Butch, yeah, the Butch Hacker. Le- butch well, H- it was Leonard Hacker. Yeah, and they used to call him Butch. Yeah, which somehow became Butch, which somehow matriculated into a Buddy. Yeah. So you go to college in Vegas. Your dad lives there half the year. Yeah. And do you live at that house? No. You in the dorms or whatever? I had bought a condo when I was sixteen years old and rented it out. My dad co-signed for it. And so you were a real estate magnet. Uh, well, early one of on. my first jokes, he said, "I bought a condo for twenty three thousand five hundred dollars, and my mother decorated it for just under two hundred thousand. <laughs> <laughs> that was your first joke. <laughs> it might have been one of my first jokes. <laughs> I said, "Mom, I can't afford this." She says, "Don't worry about it." Yeah. What are you studying? A hotel management. At the time I went, UNLV was a up and coming school. I remember that. It's a big program for that. Big program for that, and supposedly Michigan State or Cornell were the better. But we were UNLV was getting all the professors from those schools to come teach at UNLV. Yeah. And if you went to Cornell, they had a hotel on campus. It was a hundred room motel, and that's you would learn the hotel business by working. But I'm yeah. living in Las Vegas, working at the Sahara Hotel, which I ended ended up becoming part of the uh, management uh, training program. Yeah. It's a thousand rooms. We got a convention center for forty thousand square feet. We got eight restaurants, three lounges. Wow! Uh, you know, so it's I a mean, big it's job. Just, you know, how could Cornell even begin to compete? Right. Sure. So that was what you were going to do. That's what I was going to do. And what happened? Well, I ended up in the uh, my training program took me up into the marketing department, working for a guy named John Romero, who was advertising and marketing. And then I would get bored. Uh, go, and go into everybody's office. Hey, um, is there anything I can do? So the entertainment director would say, hey, I got all these tapes. Watch all this stuff and tell me if anything's any good. Yeah. Okay. For which hotel? <laughs> Sahara. Uh-huh. So I started watching. and then Your one dad day, get you the job? No, I actually, uh, because I was at UNLV, yeah. you had to get... In order to get your degree, eventually you had to have what they called 800 hours. Oh, right. 400 front of the house, 400 back of the house. Uh-huh. But those 400 in each place were, I, I think my 800 hours was 8,000 hours. Right. You know, if you worked, I worked as a lifeguard by the pool and they go, okay, you can, you can have- I'll use that for your hours. <laughs> you can have 30 hours for that. So you're a Vegas guy in what is this, the 80s? Uh, late 70s. Oh. I started when I graduated high school. So, so the old hotels are still there? Yes. Everything's still there? Everything was still there. Yeah. So I worked in the entertainment department, and then I said, you got all these auditions, and yeah. Monday night the lounge is open. There's nothing going on. It's dark. So would you watch the tapes? Yeah, I watched the tapes. Yeah. And I said, we should have, why don't we audition a few people? Well, when do you want to do it? I said, well, on a dark night, I'll just have them come in and audition. And it'll tell them to invite their friends. And the first night was successful. This band I had came in and a hundred and something people came to watch and we sold a bunch of booze. And I said to the, my boss, I said, we should do that 
again. Yeah. Okay, so we started doing it like every month. And then one day we just decided to do it on, I said, look, this thing's working. Everybody's coming. And then the musicians union said, well, if you're going to, you can't just have free entertainment, so you have to hire a local band, three musicians, give them a job. So then that, that allowed us to hire singers, I mean, to, to let people come in and use the band. Right. So we'd have rehearsal in the afternoon, the show at night. I became the host, and I was listening to the show you were interviewing uh, Drew Carey. Yeah. And he said he did the Sahara Showcase of Talent. And he said how terrible he was, and I go, wow, Drew doesn't even remember. I was the host. Yeah. That's how bad I was. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Was he bad? I don't remember Drew on that, but I do remember a lot of other wonderful performers that came through in their first time in Las Vegas. So you were structured the show, you structured it like a Vegas show where you had like a hosted variety show. Exactly. And it was what, like anywhere from what, uh, four to ten acts? How about 20 acts minimum? And a lot of times, 30 acts, we'd start at 7 o'clock at night and sometimes go till 5 o'clock in the morning. Eventually, we got to where we started around 8 and went till about 2, but oh my God, in but, the early years. But it was it like, were these polished acts or was it an open mic night? Both. Uh-huh. It was everything. Uh-huh. I mean, prime time was between, in those days in Las Vegas, you had the early show at 8, the late show at midnight. So in between the show break- Like 10? Around 10 was prime time. So you would put the more polished acts on. You, the, the better acts went on there. So you you had, you got to learn how to have a sense as a, as a booker. I, I I learned everything from that. I had to produce the show in the afternoon. I had to help the acts. I, people come in with one lead sheet. I go, we go. Well, you need more than that for the other two musicians. Wait, what was it called? It started out at the Sahara Showcase of Talent, and eventually became Sandy Hackett's uh, Talent Showcase. So you're doing shtick in between. Yes, that's where you started doing comedy by hosting. Yes. So when you tell your father that you're going to do comedy, what the hell did he say? Oh, my God. My dad wept. He was sad for you. <laughs> <laughs> he was, we were in Atlantic City. Atlantic City had just opened. The yeah. first act was Stephen Eating. My dad was the second act, and we were there for three weeks. Uh-huh. Uh, and about the se- end of the second week, I said, I'm, I'm leaving. Mm. Like, Where are you going? I said, uh, I got a job. What kind of job did you get? I said, as a stand-up comedian. He goes, where? I said, Omaha, Nebraska. He said, there's no Jews in Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I said, there's going to be one. <laughs> yeah, and he, he said, and, and, and the tears started to come down his face. And I said, what's the matter? He says, you have no idea how tough it is. He said, what name are you going to use? Yeah. I said, well, Sandy. No, what last name? I said, Hackett, why? He goes, oh, all the years I spent building up the name, I hate to see you fuck it up in one outing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I went, and oh my God, I was so nervous, uh, and no cell phones then, so call me when you get to the hotel. I'm calling my dad, and he's giving me jokes. I think it was two days before I left, so he's giving me jokes like crazy. I'm writing jokes. I'm making notes. He's helping you write jokes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and not only did he help me write jokes, but he said to me, if you're going to be in this business, learn yeah. every joke there is. Oh, yeah? So that way you'll understand the construction of a joke, know what they are, and you never know when something happens with the audience and all of a sudden you go, oh, that's the joke. All yeah. I do is deliver the punchline. Yeah. And so that's what I did. So and general jokes. General jokes. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like, because like he comes from a generation where it wasn't stealing, it was just everybody was doing that joke. Or everybody did that joke at one time or another. Uh, exactly. Right. <laughs> well, it's also how you learned. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm listening to Drew talk to you about, you know, reading a joke book. Oh, yeah, right. This is what a joke book is. So yeah. you, you go, okay, that's a joke. This is how it's constructed. Now I understand what it is. Yeah. Now I can write my own yeah. into that formula. How are you at writing jokes? Good? Yeah. Yeah? So, but- Not the, as good as you. Oh, well, thank you. You're welcome. And uh, now how about your dad? My dad was brilliant, but my dad was- all he did was, when he was doing stand-up, yeah. was stand-up. So he was like a filter. We'd be backstage sometimes up in the dressing room, yeah. and he, he didn't like noise, didn't like loud. If you came up to the dressing room, yeah. hi, Dad, how are you? Right. You could never be in there, hey, Dad, what a day I had. He'd yeah, want yeah, yeah. like, to crazy. the system. Yeah. Yeah, he'd go, he'd get the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you had to talk softly. But uh, we'd have, in Las Vegas, at the hotel, you'd have conventions all the time. So goes, what's going on? I say, well, and one night, when you were working at the hotel. Yeah, I yeah. was working at the hotel. So uh, you'd say there's, um, uh, we have the pilots convention yeah. here. We have the this convention. Right. And, oh, really? And then you talk to him and then he'd walk out and start doing two minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes on whatever it was. Yeah. So you uh, gave him the inside line. Just the information. Yeah. It, w I wasn't writing him jokes. No, just, no, that's what I mean. But yeah, like you helped him. out. Yeah. So he had, he had you on the inside just to you know, get that first five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Like who's around. And then there were nights, you know, we took him one time to the, look, I know you had the president. Here. Yeah. Amazing story. Right. I got to ski with Gerald Ford. Oh boy. Lucky you. And uh, I think to myself. Where? In Tahoe? In uh, Vail. Oh, in Vail. Yeah. So my dad says, uh, we went to the ski, there was a ski show, in, mm -hmm. I think it's called Ski Industries of America, yeah. in Las Vegas, and we wanted to go to the ski show. So if, unless you're in the industry, you can't get in. But we took my dad, and they get there, and they say, you have to have it, and they go, that's Buddy Hackett, let him in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we went in every place, hey, buddy, how you doing? They want to take pictures, they're giving us skis, they're yeah. giving us stuff like this. <laughs> yeah. And we end up meeting a guy named Bert Weinstein, who invited invented a ski binding, and he called a plate binding. So when you fall, the whole thing comes off, and then you lift up your ski, and it snaps back on to your leg. Oh, yeah, and, I remember and those, And he invites yeah. us to the, la uh, the Lang Cup, uh -huh. and uh, my dad is somewhere in Aspen, and he yeah. goes on The Tonight Show, and they said, oh, it's a bad winter, there's no snow, and my dad goes skiing in Aspen, and he comes out on The Tonight Show on Johnny in full ski gear with the that. skis. Yeah, yeah. And Johnny goes, how come the skis? He goes, well, there's a rumor that there's not enough snow, He says, but there's plenty of snow. He says, I just was skiing, and if a short, fat Jew like me could ski, you'll have a terrific time too. Well, Ski Industries of America saw this. Reservations jumped. The ski industry is thrilled, and they made him the ski ambassador of the United <laughs> States. <laughs> you know, a, a, a title. Did he love to ski? Yeah, yeah. Love to ski. <laughs> so now uh, we're going, he had a house in Aspen and he picks me up in Denver uh, and uh, I had heard that Gerald Ford was skiing in Vail yeah. and he goes, what do you want to do? I said, let's, he had done a show at the White House. Um, for Ford? Uh, for Ford. Yeah. And I remember him saying, I didn't know when you're going to meet him, is it Mr. Ford, Mr. President, yeah. uh, uh, Gerald, yeah. Mr. Gerald Ford. And so he says, I don't know what I'm going to call the guy. And I'm in the receiving line and all of a sudden I get up to Gerald Ford and he goes, buddy, I went, Jerry. <laughs> and so they start talking. Yeah. And they talk about skiing. He says, you, you should come skiing with me sometime. Yeah. And so I said to my dad, let's go skiing. So we're Let's in jail. the president. Yeah. We, we go to the, I said, how are we going to find you? He says, well, we'll go to the uh, 
the ski patrol. They'll know where he is. Sure. And we walk in and they radio and they said, uh, I got Buddy Hackett down here and his son, they want to come ski with you. Uh, Hang on one second. Uh, you know, he said, send him up. You know, and we went. On the gondola. We, uh, we went and we skied with the president and uh, two or three Secret Service and th- three or four. They had ski to know patrol. how to ski, huh? The Secret Service. They were not good skiers. The ski, <laughs> you got a guy with a with a Uzi, a machine gun around his neck, and he's snow plowing, <laughs> and the ski patrol going. This is so bad. <laughs> that was their that was their uh, their cross to bear with that presidency. Yeah, they all. I guess each president has their own thing. I my buddy used to work for Bill Clinton, and uh, for some reason Bill Clinton just couldn't stop himself from going. Going into McDonald's to get coffee, or just like you know, <laughs> wanting to stop at restaurants, and they're like, "Oh God, this isn't on the schedule." Now we got to deal with a crowd that did, you know out of nowhere. The president's going to be there. They got some job, those guys. So, so you're in house, then, uh, you know, when your father's at the Sahara and you're doing your showcase, and he's probably doing shows in the big room, right? Yeah. At the same time, yeah. Does he stop by your room? He stopped by my room. He was saying, "My kids in a lounge. You should go see him." Yeah. And then he got to, uh, "You're 54 now." So at about 50, my dad decided he no longer wanted to work two shows a night. Right. He wanted to work one. Yeah. And they said, well, no one's ever done that before. And he yeah. goes, well, I just want to work one. Why don't you ask some of the other guys? And in those days, we had Rickles, Jerry Lewis, Ronan Martin, uh, the Smothers Brothers, Johnny Carson. And you knew all those guys? Not only did I know them, but I watched their acts over and over and over again. I was mesmerized by them. Because you were out there. Yeah. And this is they were all in their mid, mid, mid-career, kind of. Yeah. Way. We're talking here in the late 70s? Uh, yeah, early Same. 70s, because I started uh, 70, yeah, or probably 70, I'm 15 the first time I was there in the summer working for a friend of my dad's yeah. as a lifeguard at the pool at the right. Stardust Hotel. Yeah. And he was the stage manager at night. Yeah. And so at night I was bored, didn't want to stay home. I came with him and I'd watch whoever. And oh, once so I you, watched- So you spent most, a lot of your adolescence uh, in Vegas, a lot of time in Vegas. Yeah. And that's how I ended about learned about UNLV is the guys were going to UNLV and I picked up the books that they were- Looking at the yeah. uh, the brochure. And so you were the kid. You were you were Buddy's kid hanging around. I was. Yeah. So you would see like you know, who'd you like watching live the most? Rickles, Shecky. Well, Johnny was just such a huge star. Johnny Carson. Yeah. When he was doing the Tonight Show. When he was doing the Tonight he Show, he would come out and do shows. He would on come the weekend. and do the weekends. Yeah. So all the guys that were working Vegas were that generation of dudes. Yeah. That had been there for decades. A lot of them. Yeah, and then we got, I mean, my dad saw, he, Del Webb, who owned the Sahara yeah. at the time, who had, at one time owned the Yankees, the construction guy. Uh, Does he make a communities now, his company? Yes. Del, yeah. Del, well, he, Del, Del Webb passed away sure. many years ago, but uh, he loved my dad, so he wanted to do something for him, made him vice president of entertainment. Uh-huh. And his but he job, was. Yeah, and his job was to recruit other entertainers to the- hotel so. and then in a nice way as a comic not as a mobster that's good <laughs> that was a big shift for vegas they fired the italian guy and let your dad do it. are you gonna come to some shows <laughs> yeah exactly I, I don't know if i no you will <laughs> yeah. you're gonna have a good time you'll see <laughs> yeah uh yeah the, well show business and the mobsters kind of work together i sure. mean you know the mobsters knew look we can do so much to get people here but you need to get these celebrities that's my grandmother used to say about vegas when, when after a change she said it was nice when the boys ran things 
Well, they would tell you, say, you know, you could leave a, a guy could come out with a suitcase and leave it in valet parking on the curb. Yeah. And it could come back two days later, it would still be there. Right. Yeah. You know, if it's someone just, took it, they'd catch him and they'd find, the suitcase would be fine, but the guy who took it would be dead. In another suitcase. <laughs> in the desert. Yeah, exactly. No, those suitcases. <laughs> they didn't want to waste some money. <laughs> but the, the uh, but no, but it was a much more intimate uh, world then in terms of like now you go there. I don't know what the hell's going on there. I, I find it very disturbing. I'm with you. It's all Cirque du Soleil. Uh, yeah, just, but, but like it seems to me when they had the original downtown and the original uh, nice hotels that there was an intimacy to it, that people, like they go every year, they see the same people, the guy who run the restaurant, the guy at the thing, right? The valet, and I they agree. develop relationships with these people mm-hmm. over, you know, decades, I would think. Yeah. So when you watch in like, uh, like Rowan and Martin, I can't, you know, they, they were there in the 70s? They, not only were they there, but if you remember, in the 60s, they had the number one TV show. Yeah, laughing. I've talked to Schwader. He wants to make another one. He should talk to me. Interested? Well, I was on the, the original one. You were? I went with my dad to hang out, yeah. and they're sitting there debating this joke. And it's eight, nine guy. I, it's not funny. We're not going to do it. No, I'm telling you, it's funny. You should do it. Yeah. And, and everybody's pitching in, and I'm off on the side. And yeah. I go, I'm just a kid, but I thought it was funny. And eight heads turned and looked at me and went perfect let's use it and i <laughs> thought i was in trouble and a little hot chitter chatter and my dad said, you want to be on television yeah. I go, okay so they took me and they sat me down my dad gave me an apple and he says you just say, i'm just a kid but i thought it was funny and bite into the apple and the juice is running down my face and they go cut so when it comes on they tell the joke they don't know if it's funny and they got richard nixon who this show marona martin's laughing to help get nixon elected yeah. because they humanized him yeah and he was was that funny yeah you know, yeah. I'm just a kid, but I thought it was funny. Oh, I thought so. Yeah. And on the show goes. So I was on uh, oh, 11 I, years old. One, just once. Well, j- just the one time. But the yeah. next year, my dad's the guest star again. Yeah. And uh, he says to me, uh, they, I'm going to do Rona Martin's yeah. laugh, and they want to know if you'd like to be on to write some stuff for you. I said, okay. So yeah. they wrote a bunch of stuff for me, and I was in the wall, and I did sketches, uh, things. Oh, that's cute. And it was fun. And you were 11? The next year, I was 12. Yeah. But your dad always he always uh, looking out for you. Absolutely. Like, uh, have a uh, fun life, fun time. Well, I, I, it wasn't even that. He would just, because I'd done, I I would go hang out with him. Yeah. So, like, do you remember, like, at that time, like, early, the difference in Vegas, like, when you were 11 or 12, and then by the time you were 20, is a huge shift, right? Oh, yeah. But, like, you used to see, like, you said Rickles, like, he was great. They, and you watch these guys do the same act over and over again? Well, my dad never did the same act. Right, but a lot of them did, right? A lot of them did. Carson had a 45, 50-minute hunk, and but he had modules. Yeah. So this week, this this run-in, he's going to do uh, this piece about right. growing up, in, and he would plug that in and, and take that out. So he had probably a... 10 hunks that he did Mix and, and another match. three or four yeah. that were- Move them around to freshen it up. Yeah, and interesting story about Johnny, um, because when he would walk on stage the first night, yeah. Johnny was really tense. Yeah. And he would hold the microphone and twist it in his hand. Uh-huh. And at the end of the first night, the first show, that mic cord was so kinked up, it would take the stage manager, who I was living with, yeah. so I knew this, take him 20 minutes to unkink this mic line. Really? Yeah. And so two shows Friday, two shows Saturday, and sometimes two shows Sunday or one show. And by the by Saturday night late show, Mike Line didn't have a kink in it. Johnny, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. He, he really got that nervous doing it. 
I don't even think Johnny knew he was doing sure. it. He just it just would be twirling the mic in his, you know. Yeah, hand. yeah. Did you see uh, Elvis a lot? I did see Elvis many times. Yeah, how was that? It was, I swear you could have held a light bulb up in the showroom and it would have turned on. The electricity to see Elvis was something I have never experienced. And uh, the colonel would say uh, his thing was, if we're sold out, then I doubled my marketing budget. He wanted it not to be just where you sold out, but he wanted it to be an event. Uh He had an incredible voice. Yeah. He had an incredible stage persona. That outfit that, you know, is so iconic now. Yeah. Nobody had that. Yeah. Uh, and you went, wow, he's the coolest guy. I don't play Vegas. There's something very uh, intimidating about it to me in the sense that, like, I don't find any charm in it anymore. I, you know, maybe the Vegas that you grew up in uh, would have been, you know, something to do. But I don't see myself as a Vegas act, and I don't see Vegas as being special in any way. Well, uh, I agree with you on everything you said although you have you know now with the netflix specials sure. and this you know you have drawing power and yeah. that's what vegas is all about is can you put asses in the seat yeah and i wonder though. i wonder in vegas i probably could a few but yeah, i wonder so if you ever decide to go i'll come open the show you're gonna open sure yeah all right so wait so now when you run in the the sandy hackett talent showcase like um like were you were you actually auditioning people that went on to things like who were some of the comics you remember well, uh, in the last year, I saw a story. Someone sent me a story that uh, an interview with uh, Andrew Dice Clay, and oh, yeah. a- Andy showed up and did first time in Las Vegas. He did the showcase and said, "I had heard that if you go to Las Vegas, and a lot of entertainers were coming through on their way to right. where, usually L.A. A lot of comedians, and they said, well, if you go to Las Vegas, the place you can get up.'" is Sandy Hackett's talent showcase. So, oh, and, so he and, went there when he moved out here? Uh, I don't know exactly, but he said, I heard Buddy Hackett's kid was doing a show, so I went there. And he wasn't Dice. He was yeah. just Andy Clay doing impressions. Andy Silverstein? He, yeah, he yeah. came and did the show. Yeah. And he was very funny. Howie Mandel yeah. uh, has talked, uh, said something about that uh, for his first time in Las Vegas, he got up. Uh, a comedian named Tony D'Andrea who went on to uh, great success as yeah. an entertainer in, in lounges and stuff. And Tony's now very sick. But he started the comic strip in New York and uh, oh, yeah. got Seinfeld on stage his sure. first time. He was the bartender. Rodney opened a place at the Tropicana called Rodney's Place, yeah. and the first special he did, Tony was part of that group with right. uh, Tim Allen, and uh, I don't even remember everybody else, but it's still on YouTube. Oh, or sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, the, yeah, he did the Young Comics type of, type of thing. Yeah, and then eventually, Kinnison bought the house above my father out at the beach. Oh, he did? In yeah. Malibu? I've been, I was at that house once. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they, they didn't sleep much at that house. They did not sleep much. <laughs> <laughs> and Sam would call my dad uh, to come up and hang out, and he goes, hey, Sam, I, you know, but a couple times Sam came down, and he, my dad would let him come by himself, or sometimes whoever he was, uh, yeah. I, don't, I remember if it was his wife or girlfriend at the time. Yeah. They would kind of, he would let him come alone. Yeah, well, he didn't want the whole entourage. Yeah, right, right, right. You know, and then amazingly, I had a comedy club in Laughlin. Laughlin, Nevada. And it was very successful, and Sam was coming. That's where, on, where Sam got killed on the way to Laughlin, and I got every phone call because they thought he was coming to do my comedy club, but he's really going down the street to the Riverside, a much bigger venue, 900-seat show sure. where he was going to be sold out, but I ended up getting called by CNN and everybody in those He days. died in Laughlin? He died on the road to Laughlin, a drunk driver coming Man, the other way, a kid in a pickup truck hit him. Did he live, that kid? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you had the club in Laughlin for how long? The club in Laughlin, almost a decade. So you were a house MC? 
I was, it was Sandy Hackett's Comedy Club. The first week, uh, I was the headliner. Yeah. And brought two other acts in. And the next week, I was on the road with my dad. And I get a call in Atlantic City from the president of the hotel who goes, I, I fired one guy after the first show. He t- trashed his room. He's gone. He said, you need to be here every week. Who was that guy? Oh, God. Uh, I don't remember what his name was. I'm glad I forgot. Okay. Uh, maybe it'll come to me. He trashed but, the hotel room? Trashed the hotel room or, or uh, lipped, yeah, whatever yeah. he did, the, 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 the president a, of the hotel fired him. He was a headliner? No, he oh. wasn't the headliner, okay. but, yeah. he, but he said to me, you're going to come, yeah. I want you here every week to okay. manage this. So I said, well, then I'll have to, I, I'm not, So this I is a hotel head- with a casino? Yeah, oh, the oh, yeah. Samstown Gold River, right. uh, Boyd Gaming. Yeah. And uh, so I said, okay, and I'll have to host the show. He said, I don't care what you do, you just be here. Uh-huh. And so I was, and I stayed there for eight years, and I would host the show and bring in other wonderful comedians. And you had a piece of it? It, it was, it was my everything i did everything right but like what what's the what, what do you mean a piece of it i mean like what's the cut for the hotel and for you oh the hotel just gave me a flat salary yeah uh which is what they paid for the show we did eight shows a week 10 on three-day weekends we'd go wednesday two shows thursday friday yeah. saturday two shows right and on three-day weekends we work sunday two shows so you're like yeah right okay so you got it by, by name you booked it you did all everything but you were on salary with the hotel right i did marketing and then yeah. they would give me rooms for the comedians right we'd eat in the employee dining room and so everybody must have done that no like back in the day what years were these uh, 1990, I started. Oh, oh, so it's a little later than the boom, but you know, you must have got a lot of people. Like, uh, like who were the headliners? Oh my goodness, uh, different ones every week. Yeah, Old I, guys, I, ch- young I would guys. change acts every week. Yeah. Uh, a lot of guys, I'm sure you know. If, right. I, if I started to go through uh, Joey Anetti, oh yeah, uh, Roger Peltz. Uh-huh. Uh, I had an act called Nine Seven Six Sing, uh-huh. which was three guys that sang dirty limericks, okay. and they were very funny and they couldn't get booked much because there were three guys and they couldn't split the money Yeah, but I would get the hotel to up the money a little bit and give them each their own room and they would work eight, ten times a year. I usually booked them on three-day weekends and they were funny and had a big following. It's interesting. So like that your father and also like, you know, just like, you know, I know Joe Unetti. I started with Joe Unetti in uh, in Boston, you know, but I, I don't know how many people know Joe Unetti. I love Joe Unetti. I remember his first bits, but like it, there's like there and there always has been apparently. A, a a an entire you know hundreds and hundreds of comics that that work all year round that people just don't really know, you know, and it, it, I think it's always been that way. Well, I don't know about you, but in the eighties, yeah, when I was doing all the comedy clubs, I felt I knew everybody. Right. I I'd heard of somebody. Right. I knew. Oh, did you hear? It? Yeah, I, I knew who that was. Now I go, you got to be kidding me. I, I I'm looking at Netflix specials or things like that. Going, well, we're old now, but but the thing was is like <laughs> thanks when when I read about like you know the different generations know each other. Do you yes. know what I mean? Like we obviously didn't know everybody, but when I read like Cliff, Cliff Nesteroff's book, The Comedians, which is great, uh, you should get it if you haven't read it. It's great. I look for that. Like in the time that your dad started in post-war America, there was a fucking explosion when the you know supper clubs like took over the country. They needed to fill. So there's a lot of guys that were doing each other's acts that people never heard of. There were hundreds of them that because the circuit was there. You well, know? I caught the tail end of the Playboy Club, which was the supper club, which was unbelievable training ground. I mean, you had to do two shows a night, three on Friday, four on Saturday. I mean, yeah. By the end of the week, you're going, boy, this stuff sounds familiar. <laughs> sure. So you opened for your dad for years? Uh, a decade. Yeah. This is just you and him on the road? Yeah. And like, it was. did you talk about him? At the, how did you handle that? I mean, were you, well, <laughs> everyone knew you were his kid. Was the whole they, act based on that? <laughs> no, the whole act was not based on that, but I started opening for him as a singer. 
Oh, because in those days, when you go back to the 70s and 80s, you know, in Las Vegas, it was if there was a comic headliner, there was a musical opening act, or if there's musical the other way around. So you're song and dance man too? Oh, you don't want to see me dance. And you actually don't want to hear me sing. My wife's an incredible singer. Yeah. But uh, the... Um, my dad came to see I had a, a band and uh-huh. he came to see me and he goes okay so I'm going to give you a shot you're going to come work with me and but not the band just you so you got to get I had to get charts and stuff like that and uh, I opened for him as a singer and then we'd go on the road and we'd have a band and there'd be a ba- I had to get there early to rehearse and then there was I don't have a musical director which yeah. now I nowadays with Rat Pack I travel with a musical director because yeah. I don't want to sit there and rehearse the band that's not what I do right but I'd have to do everything. I'd sing my voice out. Uh, I wasn't a great singer, but I had no voice by showtime. And we get to some place, and the band is terrible, and they got attitudes, and they're assholes. And I went back on the break, and they, oh, it's time for us to take a break now. And as I go into my dad, and he goes, "How's it going? Don't sound too good." I said, "They're all assholes, and they're terrible." And he goes, "What do you want to do?" I said, "I'd like to fire him." He says, "What about the show?" He says, "Could you do stand up?" Uh, "Oh yeah." He said, can you do a half hour? Sure. Okay, fire the band. So I go back out, and they go, what's next? I said, go home. And he said, what? I said, go home. And yeah. that was that's when it became great, because that was probably in the first year, year and a, maybe the first year with my dad. And then we just do his two guys doing stand-up. And oh, that's sweet. So one of the things when you say, I didn't talk about him. I just did my stand-up that I right. was doing. But one of the things is, I said, I know what you're thinking. It's Buddy Hackett's son. I said, a lot of guys would have liked to have this job. Yeah. I said, so many other comedians said, boy, boy, I would love to open for Buddy Hackett. What a thing for my career would that would be. And I told my father. And he said, fuck them, let them find their own famous father. <laughs> <laughs> and you did well with that? Well, first of all, I'm with my best friend. Yeah. He's teaching me. You yeah. know, the next day, you, you know, he's going over, well, and you told this joke, that was a little much on this word. You need to take these couple words oh, out. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, he was honing it, honing it, honing it, telling me. Was he me, always right? Oh, yeah. always right. Comedically, yeah. always right. He used yeah. to talk about peeling the onion, uh-huh. going inside the... I mean, if it was a joke, you could still find 10 other jokes in there. Yeah. And when I first heard that, I go, what? The joke ends over here. No, no, that, don't even worry about the end. It's the story on the way to the end that gets you. And my dad would That's do that. That's right. That's he, so true. He, he would start, and I've seen you do that, where you start talking about yeah. something, and you're not in a rush to get to the end. You're, you're interested in the journey that yeah. takes you yeah. there. Yeah, it took and, me a long time to figure that and, out. And my dad would have, he'd start this story, then he'd start, th- and my dad would have 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20 different stories going at the same time, and some how by the end of the night come back and wrap them all up <laughs> yeah but that he would call peeling the onion going inside the orange finding the fruit finding the other stuff not be don't be in a rush to get to the end there's so much good stuff in the middle here yeah just telling the story of how you got to that right I watched your last uh, both Netflix special. too real the recent one yeah, yeah. and I said you know I, I felt like you were talking to me yeah and I go that's that's what I love in a, personally in a community. Right, that yeah. was my dad my dad was so honest nothing contrived yeah. I, I, to me that's the kind of comedy I don't care for is contrived. Sure. But the stuff that's just so real and honest that you can't go, well, that's not true. You right, go, right. This is so dead on. Your stuff comes from that. The pain you have, the yeah. life you've had, the stuff you have. Yeah. It's quite wonderful. Thank you, buddy. No, well, Sandy. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's, that's funny. <laughs> Guys, that's a genuine moment. So, now, out of curiosity, so the Rat Pack show you created with your wife, Right. I didn't create it with my wife to start with. I was in Las Vegas. There was a show called The Rat Pack. Yeah. 
uh, is back. Uh, yeah, I remember that. I think my uh, Mark Cohen was in it. Too, Mark but. Cohen was in that, and David Cassidy had uh, brought it to Las Vegas. Yeah. But he had seen it somewhere else. And Mark Cohen did the uh, the Joey Bishop part? Yes. Yeah. Uh, but he was like the third or fourth guy yeah. to eventually do it. Yeah. And Cassidy was, uh, you know, tough to work with for the hotels. Yeah. He'd keep asking for more and more. And one day- his David con- Cassidy, like the Parger family? Yes, dead, David. Dead, dead, uh, David Cassidy? Yes. Yeah. No longer with us, yeah. David Cassidy. Right. Uh, and um, when the show first started, someone said, boy, the perfect guy for this to play the Joey role would be Sandy Hackett. And so I approached uh, the uh, production manager and brought him my stuff. And he, yeah. he said, bring it to my house. I'll look at it. And I didn't find this out until years later when I actually worked from somewhere else. But he said, I thought you would have been the perfect guy for this. Um, but David just didn't want you. But they hired Hiram Caston. Oh, yeah. Hiram Caston. The original Joey who, Hiram's a nice guy, but yeah. he, he's not Joey, didn't play Joey, just was called Joey, and he would beat up the audience. So uh, there was- uh, He just did his shtick. He did his shtick, yeah. and he beat up the crowd. Why are you here? Yeah. And uh, made the show very tough. So eventually, D- David's contract ran out, and uh, I was uh, said to, uh, I said, let's, I want to do this, I want to do yeah. my version of it. Right. And that's what happened. And then my wife eventually came and helped me, and her father was Ron Miller, who wrote for Once in My Life, Touch Me in the Morning, If mm-hmm. I Could, Yesterday, Me, Yesterday, Yesterday, Someday Christmas, I brought you a couple of CDs oh, of thanks, her, pal. in case maybe you want to have her on, I don't know, but she was uh, very bright, very, we wanted to take the show to a much higher level, yeah. and put, put much more production There was no uh, uh, copyright problems? No. In terms of like the other show or anything? No, because you're talking about something that was public domain, and actually this all went to court, and there was someone that tried to glom onto Rat Pack and say, I own it. Right. And the court said, no, Rat Pack was the press dubbed those performers. Oh, really? Sinatra didn't like the term Rat Pack. He yeah. wanted to call it the summit. Right. So the the Rat Pack was the press's nomenclature for the show. Oh, no kidding. And so there was, uh, it ended up in court, and uh, the guy who tried to- glom it all for himself got clobbered by the court and cost him a fortune but he was but it freed it up yeah so so you tour it was never not free it was always free right so you tour with it still yeah so one day always uh, you playing joey uh, I've I've hired many other uh, actors to play it, but one day Joey, uh, I get a uh, HBO announced they were doing the the Rat Pack movie yeah which you had Ray Liotta on so they're going to HBO announces we're doing this Rat Pack movie yeah and I get a call. My phone rings one day, and it's Joey Bishop. Yeah, and who was very good friends with my dad. And he, he was, lived a long time, Joey Bishop. He was. He was eighty nine. Yeah, he was Uncle Joey. Yeah, to you and uh, to me. Any any well to everybody. Yeah, no, <laughs> to me. And he, he, he phone rings, and uh, I said hello, and the voice says uh, hello, Neff. I said Uncle Joey is yeah. here. He says, HBO's doing a movie about the Rat Pack. I think you would be perfect to play me. I said, wow, I'd, I'd, wh- I would love that. What do I do? Who do I do? I don't know. Nobody called me. Uh-huh. True story. They hired Bobby Slayton yeah. to play. Now, Bobby Slayton. And Bobby did a very nice job. But the, the problem was, not for Bobby, the problem was the movie was really about how Sinatra helped get Kennedy elected president. Yeah. It wasn't really about the Rat Pack. Yeah. So, uh, but that set me on a course to want to create something to play Joey. Yeah. And that's is what you did. And that's what I did. Now, when you tour with this thing, and you've been touring with it a long time, uh, who are the audiences in general? 
And where, what do you, what kind of venues do you play in, out of curiosity? We have played all kinds of venues, but we've been on subscription on Broadway right. houses, so 22,000, 2,500 seats. Uh-huh. Uh, we've been in smaller, like summer stock theaters, uh-huh. four or five hundred seats, and do like a two or three week, two or three week run there. Yeah, uh, we worked a place called Theater by the Sea, which is up in uh, Rhode Island. So subscription holders mostly, right? Uh, sometimes, and sometimes just for sale. I guess my curiosity is, is, is are, are they older people? They started out older, and yeah. over the years, um, we've gotten both. The yeah. reputation of the show, people, I, I'll see kids, parents bringing their kids, you know, and I'll see a kid, t- 12 years old, dressed up in a suit with a fedora on, Loves Sinatra. Oh, yeah. And why does he love Sinatra? He's listening to either sure. Sinatra music or he's listening to Michael Bublé yeah. or Harry Connick Jr. Right. Or just great music. So right. it's uh, it's everything. But the show, it's it's about the Rat Pack. It is the Rat Pack, but it is great music. Sure. And so if you like that big band sound, and yeah. we, I've updated it comedically, uh, because if you go back to 1960 and do all those jokes, then you're kind of set. So what I did is I asked my dad to record a voiceover to, as God to yeah. send the Rat Pack back to do one last show in modern day. Yeah. So that opens it up comedically to so what's you, going right. on. Oh, that's good. To, 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 and so I play it. Joey, so I get to use my stand-up experience and play Joey and do that. Oh, so it's good. It keeps it fresh. Keeps it now, fresh. tell that story about uh, when you went to see Shecky Green for the first time uh, with your father and uh, Shecky. Uh, oh, that one. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, well, it's not the first time. They're closing the lounge of the Riviera. Oh, okay. And so in those days, you had what I said before, the 8 o'clock show, the, the 12 o'clock yeah. show, and then the lounges were 10 and 2 o'clock in the morning. Right. So they've decided Vegas is changing. They're closing the lounges, and it's closing night, and Checky signed a new contract to the new MGM. Yeah. So he's moving. So he's already set. So all the entertainers come into town, and my dad calls me, and I'm in college, and he calls, and he says, hey, uh, we're going to go see Shecky. It's closing night. You want to go? I said, yeah. So I go to school. I come home. I take a nap. Now I'm ready to go for the night. I go to the late show of my dad's yes yeah. guess we hang out we go over the room is packed maybe four or four hundred fifty people yeah. every entertainer from town is there yeah and it's shecky green vic damone and vic is on stage still and he's getting everybody from the audience up to sing so, uh, jack jones is singing frankie randall wayne newton everybody yeah. gets up and does a few minutes finally shecky comes out and he's brilliant and yeah. he's funny and he's wonderful and now he starts to introduce everybody in the room and sitting you can see six eight feet away is sinatra right down front yeah and my dad we're in the back shecky didn't know we were coming you know and they they got us in and found a seat for us in the back and no one and Shecky's introduced everybody. I'm yeah. 18 years old, and I am dying for my dad to be recognized. Yeah. And I'm going, and Shecky goes, there's only one person left to do introduce. Uh, I'm doing my dad. Yeah. There's one person left to introduce. How do you introduce God himself? That's what and Shecky says. She, that's what Shecky says, and he's looking right at Frank. Yeah. And my dad jumps up from the back of the room, which, you know, maybe... 50 feet, yeah. runs to the front of the stage, right to Sinatra, goes, Shecky, forget about me. Frank's here. <laughs> <laughs> and who laughed the hardest? Sinatra. Sinatra <laughs> loved it. There were certain guys that he let do that, right? Well, yeah, Frank had a sense of humor, and he loved to be entertained. I mean, I don't know if you've interviewed Tom Dreesen, but he toured with them for a long time. He's got all kinds of stories. Well, yeah, I got I got to call Dreesen. I, I actually, uh, thanks for reminding me. But your dad was a, he, he partied a little bit, right? Uh, he didn't do drugs. 
He yeah. did drugs when he was young, and one day, uh, I think him and Lenny used to smoke gr- weed. Uh, yeah. yeah, weed. Yeah. And one day, he said he got on a plane in New York. He was going out to LA for something. He got off, and somebody came up to him at the airport. He said, "You got any shit?" And he went, "Uh oh." <laughs> I'm not doing I don't want people coming up to me going do you have any shit yeah 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 so yeah. he quit yeah um, but he drank yeah and he used to whatever is you know he, sometimes he'd drink vodka for two or three months or tequila yeah, or, yeah. and then he would test he said oh this is gonna be a tequila show yeah uh, this see is, how it go this is see gonna be a vodka best? show oh yeah <laughs> we're gonna uh, oh we're gonna have a this is gonna be a gin show yeah yeah you know, and yeah. then I started tour with him, and he said, "We're gonna have a little drink." Yeah, and I'm not much of a drinker, Dad. Oh, we'll just have a little one. Yeah, and <laughs> so he started to get me, and I'd go on with a little bit of a buzz sometimes. Oh, that's good. Uh, and then he'd have too much, and I'd be and I'd be the one driving oh, when yeah. we left. Yeah, but he never he never screwed up his act. Look, let's be honest. You get to a point of a couple of drinks, you're okay. Yeah, you know, uh, half the bottle. Yeah. I can tell. Yeah, right. Can, can, can the audience tell? Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. There are a couple times where I go, okay, too much, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to drive. Well, I'll tell you this. You know, when I was a kid, maybe 13 years old, you know, I, I, I wrote to your father and asked for an autographed picture, and he sent it. Somebody sent it, and I got it. That would have been my mother who sent it because my dad, <laughs> as far as following up on stuff like that, yeah. my mother handled all that. Well, that was very nice. But she got him to sign everything. Yeah, and, yeah, it was great. She it was great. It, so it meant a lot to me because I loved him. I thought it was Well, and from that, I ended up on your show. So yeah, thank that's, you. That's exactly right. <laughs> it's good to meet you, Sandy. <laughs> nice to meet you, Mark. Well, that was that. That's a life. That's two lives in show business we just covered. So Sandy Hackett, as I said, is uh, earlier currently touring with his show, Sandy Hackett's Rat Pack. Go to sandyhackett.com for tour dates and info. He's currently working on a book about his father called My Buddy. And don't forget, I'll be at the Beacon Theater in New York City this Saturday at 7.30 p.m. Check out wtfpod.com slash tour to see if there are any tickets left. And if you're there, you'll get the first crack at our new WTF t-shirt designed by Aaron Draplin. All right. I'm going to go eat dinner at Veselka with Sarah the Painter. Boomer lives! Boomer lives!